This episode of New Politics was recorded on the 16th of July, 2021, and produced on the land of the Wangal people. Welcome to the New Politics Podcast. In this episode, we look at the continuing lockdown in Sydney and lockdown number five in Victoria. And who is the real Prime Minister? It's a question that really needs to be asked. I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis, supermodel and catwalk model. And just a reminder to let our audience know about the different ways that you can be a supporter or a part of New Politics. You can purchase one of our books or purchase one of our Julia Gillard or Gough Whitlam t-shirts, or you can just provide a small contribution. And you can also support us through Patreon. That's only $5 per month. That's not very much at all. And all of the details are available at our website, newpolitics.com.au. So David, we're not greedy and our podcast and journalism will always be available for free, but every small amount helps. And you know, we've got that mortgage on the second mansion to pay off kids at school, and you've, you've still got to pay off that Maserati, don't you? I had to let the second gardener go. It's tragic. The Sydney lockdown has been extended for another two weeks, and with fluctuating caseload numbers, it's difficult to know when this will all end. Some epidemiologists are suggesting that with the current format of lockdown, which is quite mild compared to the other lockdowns all around Australia, it might not be until September before the Sydney lockdown is lifted. Now, we've put aside all of those arguments about whether the New South Wales government should have locked down earlier, and the short answer is yes, they should have. But now there's a different political issue that has arisen from this lockdown, and that's the question of why New South Wales is receiving more federal government support during the Sydney lockdown compared to the support provided to other states during their respective lockdowns. This week we saw the end of the State of Origin Rugby League series, and that's promoted as state against state, mate against mate. And being a big rugby league fan, it seems that Scott Morrison has moved this idea from the football field and turned it literally into a game of state against state, premier against premier. It's appalling. One of the things that drives them is that they have to beat Labor. They have to keep Labor out of office. They have to be better than Labor. So they cannot at any point take anything that was clearly a Labor policy. Now, sometimes they do that all the time, of course, and Labor will take Liberal policies as well. But everybody's watching them in the pandemic. So if they were to say, yes, we're going to do a hard lockdown and we're going to do exactly as Melbourne did because it worked, that would be seen from them to be failure. And of course, doing the right thing is never failure. And health policy should not have anything to do with party politics. But we are run by children at a federal level and at a state level. Immature egomaniacs who really shouldn't be anywhere near parliament. It's mismanagement. It's pure partisan. Now, it's a particular stripe of liberal, by the way. It's been pointed out many times that the Marshall Liberal government of South Australia has actually managed the pandemic quite well by following genuine health advice and not worrying about what other states think. The Gutwine Liberal government of Tasmania has managed the pandemic quite well. It's not really about Liberal versus Labor. It's about this particular stripe of neoliberal. And you have the added wrinkle in Sydney of the endemic 
nepotism and corruption that has run the city since 1788 with the same people benefiting, with the same people basically telling the Premier what to do. This is how we're into a what could be a very long lockdown. And of course, we hope it's not. When the pandemic first commenced in March 2020, Morrison was quick to point out that now is not the time for political games and ideology was going to be left at the door. Now, that might have been the case for the first month or two last year, but ever since then, Morrison and the Treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, they've sought to exploit division, they've pitted the Labor states against the Liberal states, and they've offered every possible excuse whenever there's a problem caused by either the federal Liberal government or Liberal state governments as well. With the recent Sydney lockdown, Frydenberg kept on blaming the limousine driver for causing the lockdown in Sydney and pushing that narrative that the Sydney outbreaks are all due to bad luck, but Melbourne outbreaks are all caused by Labor incompetence. And, you know, it's got nothing to do with bad luck at all. And and because of this, the implication is that New South Wales is far more deserving of federal government support than Victoria because the New South Wales government just happens to have all the bad luck. The other point is that the Liberal Party is always quick to blame people from lower socioeconomic backgrounds for these issues. And of course, they never take responsibility for their own failures. But in Sydney, they put all of the blame on a Sydney limousine driver not wearing a mask. And he just happens to be from an Indian background. Last year, when there was an outbreak in Adelaide, they blamed Pizza Guy, a young Spanish pizza shop worker. So in both cases, they attacked people from migrant backgrounds and people that couldn't really defend themselves instead of looking at their own failures and their own ineptitude. The more strident that Gladys Berejiklian gets in the press conference, the more it seems that the New South Wales government is careening out of control. I'm now sounding like a Sky host because I understand Sky News has been uh, saying the same things, probably for different reasons, and we won't go into those reasons. Hello, people from Sky, both viewers and hosts. Well, there's a few issues at play too, actually. Uh, New South Wales, the minister has the final say. So our whole health policy and health orders do not happen until... The minister, in this case, Brad Hazard, approves it. In every other state and federally, it is the chief medical officer who has the final say and then the ministry approves it, whereas it's the reverse in New South Wales. So vested interests who can get into the premier's ear and into the health minister's ear get a much larger say. A lot of the talk has been about, well, we've talked with health professionals good and we've talked with business why business of course business we know what business is going to say they're going to say please don't close us down and that's not unreasonable but in a health crisis it's not a solution and you did mention that idea of the liberal party their their idea of keeping labor out now politicians and political leaders well they're going to behave politically that's that's what the nature of their job is but I guess this is a little bit of a side issue, but Liberal Party members and members of Parliament, they were surveyed in 2013-2014 or thereabouts, and 
it was something like over 400 of their members that were surveyed. And when they were asked about their main motivation for their existence in politics or why they're a member of the Liberal Party, 89% of them said it was to keep Labor out. And that was their sole motivation for being involved in politics. And looking at their behaviour over the past eight years, you can see why they keep having so many problems. They're not focused on the task of government, but they're focused on the task of keeping the Labor Party out. And that's a very uncreative process. It's a very dull process as well. When the Liberal Party was formed in 1944, Robert Menzies had done a speech, a very famous speech called The Forgotten People, where he said, this is the constituency. This is for the people who look after themselves, who when they have problems, they go inward, not outward. They are successful, but they are modestly successful he laid out basically the, the philosophy of the party. Alfred Deakin had done the same thing. It was a slightly different uh, approach because it was a slightly different society uh, 50 years before. Scott Morrison has spoken on Menzies, but it was pretty clear he had no understanding of really who Robert Menzies was or his importance to his party, let alone Australia. I've said this before, I think. I don't think that any... Liberal Party politician can say why they're there except some vague of serving the Australian people and keeping Labor out. Now, the trouble with that is that it's contradictory. You're either serving the Australian people or you're doing your best to hamper approximately half of the Australian voting population. Again, it's this American idea coming out of the neoliberal, and we see it in organisations in America like the NRA, here it, it's expressed through the IPA, and it's about winning over the left. And the idea is is that people get distracted on the debate on these certain things, and meanwhile, taxes for the wealthy get lowered, tariffs get dropped without thought as to why, business regulation gets cut, defence spending goes up, education spending goes down. That's where we're at at the moment. Uh, I'd love to say, I really would, that... The Prime Minister has the best interests of Australia at heart, but I can't see it. So Morrison and Frydenberg have come rushing to the aid of the New South Wales government with buckets and streams of money. The New South Wales Premier, Gladys Berejiklian, she did say, well, we've really pushed hard to get this federal support, but support couldn't come quickly enough. And there's two factors there. One is that the federal government is a Liberal National Party government. The New South Wales government is a Liberal National Party government as well. And they're like-minded ideologically. They're from the same side of politics. So that's all understandable on some level. I don't condone it, but it, you can see where they're coming from. But the other real reason that Scott Morrison is pushing the support of the New South Wales government so much is that he needs New South Wales seats in the next federal election. Now, whether it's unlikely to happen before the end of next year, it's looking more likely to be a 2022 federal election. He needs to hang on to every seat in New South Wales, and he probably has to win a couple of extra seats on top of that, and probably not going to happen. It gives the federal government also the opportunity to disguise a lot of their largessing or pork barrelling in the form of COVID assistance as well. So there's a whole lot of other factors going on here, and it's not so much to provide direct support to the people of New South Wales. They're looking at this politically, and they're looking at it through the lens of the next federal election. Yeah, it's never in terms of what's best. 
And if we look at Mark McGowan in Western Australia, he made some very unpopular decisions, but they turned out to be the right decision. And as a result, the Liberal Party was nearly wiped out of office. Victoria is going to probably have a similar result. Now, both the Victorian and the Western Australian Liberal Parties were in disarray. Um, The Victorian Liberal Party is barely rabble, ineffective, nutty, and quite unelectable. Of course, rules change, but I'm pretty sure that our Victorian listeners, the vast majority would agree with that. Western Australian Liberal Party, too, collapsed six weeks. And of course, we could look at a Palaszczuk in in Queensland where the main opposition basically collapsed. But there's reasons for this. And and part of the reason is that all three premiers stood up and made unpopular decisions. They all made mistakes too, I think. I think that's fair to say. And I've also, we've also said in the past that mistakes were going to be inevitable in unprecedented times, particularly in retrospect, because they were relatively honest about those mistakes and were relatively brave enough to make decisions that they knew would hurt, they knew would could be unpopular, but they knew were the right thing based on the actual best evidence, not the health advice we've been given, as Gladys Berejiklian continually says. She doesn't say who gives this advice, by the way. She just says, oh, we get the health advice we've been given, which has been in contradiction to every other piece of health advice in the country and in the region. A bit of courage goes a long way with people. And even if they don't like the decision, and and Melbourne is furious at the current lockdown, mainly at Gladys, but it's to the point where everybody or most people understand that Daniel Andrews had to make that decision. And as five days, they've done it before, we'll, we'll get through it, all of that. And that's fantastic. Whereas in New South Wales, we don't know how long, really. Gladys keeps getting asked, are you going to extend it? We can't know. At this point, we're at a point where it's too late for Gladys to make a brave decision anyway. She's lost her credibility. Well, I guess it also gets down to the respective experiences of the different state governments. Victoria is now into its fifth lockdown over the past 18 months. It's a short five-day lockdown announced yesterday. It knows exactly what needs to be done. It's got the experience of, of doing lockdowns. Now, that's not to say that the Victorian public and the electorate enjoys going through lockdowns but compared to Sydney Sydney's now only into its second lockdown or I guess the third if you include the northern beaches late last year although that was just a partial lockdown but there's also that perspective or that understanding that the New South Wales government it wasn't taking the threats presented by coronavirus too seriously earlier this year it was quick to remove much of the evidence of barriers or signage related to COVID-19 the New South Wales government, it did have a great degree of success during 2020, but I guess during that success, they were too busy scoring political points against the Labor states or too busy becoming complacent. During this time of crisis, it's not just a matter of looking at what's happening in your own state or in your own backyard. Governments do need to look at what's happening in other states and other territories. They need to be looking at what's happening in nearby regions they also need to look at what's or what was happening in countries such as India the United States and Britain and there's a vast amount of knowledge and information out there you can learn from what other countries and other jurisdictions have been doing and you learn from other people's mistakes so it seems that 
in Australia, there's a New South Wales government that wasn't prepared to look back and learn and prepare for the present. And in the federal government and for the prime minister, there's a situation where they're unwilling to learn and prepare for the future. Yes, exactly. He's preparing for the election. It's getting to a quite desperate level of preparation for him too. Um, Apparently his dog had a column in the Daily Telegraph. I I haven't read it. I won't. Uh, He appeared on Kyle and Jackie O to dispel rumours of of an event that we're now almost certainly positive happened at Engadine McDonald's some years back. And we are too highbrow to discuss the the details of the Engadine McDonald's incident. (laughs) I'm sure everyone listening knows. But the two things to Google are Scott Morrison, Engadine McDonald's and the Streisand effect. I think he's realised the Saturday night curries, which a lot of cooking experts pointed out the ingredients that he prepared and the ingredients that ended up in the curry were two completely different things. Uh, the pictures with Jen and the kids are starting to not work. People are now starting to hold him to account. And he's a man who's never liked accountability and who, it seems, always falls down when he's held to account. Um, and this has been a career-long thing of his. The federal government has announced that there will be $500 million of support payments for each week of the Sydney lockdown, but once again, we'll have to check the fine print and the details of these arrangements to work out whether this is just another announcement rather than providing essential support for the community of Sydney. But whatever support comes through, and hopefully it will be that amount and it will go to the people that need it instead of what we saw with the JobKeeper program that was rorted by big businesses such as Harvey Norman. And hopefully the support offered to New South Wales will also be applied to other states when they're in the same predicament. And that it just won't be a case of rewarding like-minded states and punishing the others. But even within Sydney itself, there's been differences in the way that different sections of the city have been treated. The northern beaches and the eastern suburbs, they're strong liberal areas. There's been a great amount of COVID resources and support that's being offered there. And and a lot of leniency shown during this lockdown. But it's a different story for the area of Fairfield. That's a solid labour, working class migrant region. There's been a far greater police presence in this area and they're not being provided with the same resources that that exist in other parts of the city. I'm in the LGA next to Fairfield and there's been a few people of colour say they, they haven't felt that it's been terribly racist, it's just that the circumstances in Fairfield are different. So I've got to acknowledge that. But I can't help but think... The fact that they announced the extra police, which there may have been extra police in Bondi and, and the eastern suburbs and on the northern beaches, but they didn't announce them. They just sent them up there. Yeah, people have said, oh, I've been on Bondi Beach and the police have moved us on. Okay, that's great, you know, but they didn't say, oh, we're sending extra police in to enforce these new relatively unclear health regulations. The local member, Sophie Kotsis, said that 26% of casual workers, cleaners live in Fairfield. They're trying to limit movement in Fairfield and out of Fairfield to stop the spread, which is, again, admirable and good, without really thinking of how this is possible. The handouts will be interesting. We'll see who gets the handouts. The other thing is that if you're working outside of the Fairfield LGA, you have to have a COVID test every three days. Okay, that's not bad either. I I can't really criticise that policy. 
except they haven't set up enough testing centres. People are having to go at two in the morning to start their work at five o'clock to get their every three-day test. They're lining up for hours and hours. If this had been Northern Beaches, Brad Hazard's seat, I bet that there'd have been ample testing and it wouldn't have been the debacle that it was. Well, the Bondi region did have a lot of testing zones set up quite quickly. Now, it is one thing to, as you suggested, and if you're being told to get tested every three days in a particular area, that's all well and good, but the support just wasn't ramped up. It's almost as though the New South Wales government made that decision on the day and they didn't think it all through. They didn't think, well, okay, there's 200,000 people that live in that Fairfield area and there'd be quite a lot of workers in that area that are moving out of the Fairfield zone. What are we going to do to get them tested? So, of course, you need to ramp this up and you need to think this through. And it's like they just didn't think that through. So, of course, we ended up getting five to 10 kilometre car queues of people wanting to get tested. And it's also very difficult for people to get vaccinated in those areas as well, as it is for most parts of Sydney. We can't say whether there was specifically a different policy or a different process approach for Fairfield when compared to Bondi and the Northern Beaches, but you only have to look at the evidence. It's The results have been quite radically different. Yeah, they don't know how to deal with Western Sydney. And I know that people say, oh, but Gladys can't be racist. She's Arminian, as if people from Europe aren't racist. And she may not be racist, but the policies that are going through are targeting ethnic groups in ways that don't suggest a fair and equitable spread of responsibility and benefit throughout the whole community, regardless of suburb or background. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through SoundCloud, Spotify and Amazon Audible, or find us at newpolitics.com.au and you can now follow us at Patreon. Up next, we ask the question, who is the real Prime Minister? There's been a little bit of confusion about who the real Prime Minister is, and this came about when it was revealed that the former Prime Minister, Kevin Rudd, was asked by business leaders to contact the international head of Pfizer to fast-track the delivery of vaccines to Australia. Now, it's a very easy mistake to make. The actual Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, goes missing for extended periods of time for no real reason. When there's a crisis, he tends to go overseas without letting anyone know. And whenever problems are caused by his government, he deflects and blames others for the responsibility of those problems. If prominent business leaders are deciding to turn to a former Prime Minister to do the work of the current Prime Minister, well, it does make you wonder, just what exactly does Scott Morrison do with his time? Rudd has been out of office for eight years, although he does have high-level international contacts and influence around the globe, but the fact that business leaders show more confidence in a long-gone Prime Minister than the incumbent says a lot about the skill set of Scott Morrison and his inability to get things done. Yeah, we would had two Prime Ministers since Kevin Rudd, Tony Abbott and Malcolm Turnbull, and yet neither of those were approached. The fact that 
whoever the business person was, and there's all kinds of rumors as to who it was, approached Rudd was really interesting. Now, it could be that they knew that Kevin Rudd had an in to uh, the makers of Pfizer that Tony Abbott and Malcolm Turnbull didn't have. And certainly, everybody was very clear to say that Mr. Rudd didn't get any contracts changed. They just brought forward the delivery date. And of course, the contract would have had delivery by X date, which means you can bring it forward and you, you, you don't need to change the contract in any way. It's just an interesting situation. And it seems that Kevin Rudd made a good approach and did a great job in bringing forward what had already been ordered. No extra doses were added to the thing either. Both Pfizer and Rudd were very clear on that in their correspondences to the media and to the Prime Minister. In those five days, it seems that uh, Scott Morrison was getting hair plugs. Well, whether or not Rudd's interventions made any material difference or not, that's beside the point. The, the The issue is that he was contacted by business leaders to make an approach to Pfizer to get things happening because things were not happening at all on, on the vaccine front. Now, just as a comparison, it has been revealed that Scott Morrison made at least 55 phone calls to world leaders to secure the OECD job for Matthias Cormann. And he made zero phone calls to the head of Pfizer. Why did he make 55 phone calls to world leaders? And that includes the first conversation that he had with the new American president, Joe Biden. He congratulated him and said, you know, well done on your election victory. And we look forward to working with you in the future. But then he added on at the end, well, what about my mate Matthias Cormann? You know, let's support him for his job at the OECD. So that was totally inappropriate for the first time that you're speaking to the US president. We just have to ask the question, well, why were so many phone calls made to world leaders all around the world to secure the job for a, a friend that helped him become the prime minister in Australia? Compare that with the phone calls that he made to Pfizer. Absolutely zero. Parenthetically, Cormann hasn't impressed in the job, apparently. He hasn't been awful, but they were hoping for someone of a bit more substance and a bit more style and a bit more competence. Having said that, the Prime Minister's priorities are all over the place and not the right ones. He doesn't like pressure, it seems. He's not good at thinking on his feet. He's not good at constructing an argument. I'm wondering if there's a lot of backbenchers now weighing up their hopes of re-election, even with what will be the biggest pork barrel campaign ever coming up for the next election. I suspect none of this stuff will bode well for him in the future. Well, I guess that's a separate issue that we'll have to keep a track of, but this issue still returns us to that issue of the lack of negotiation with Pfizer, Mm. which then has resulted in the lack of supply. All those failures back in July 2020... The United States, the European Union, they made their contracts at the time. And when Australia came back to Pfizer in November 2020 to place their orders, well, Pfizer told them you had the opportunity to take up a massive supply of doses before. And you said no. And we've made contracts with other countries. We have to now fulfill those contracts and those supplies. And it's not like vaccines just fall off the back of a truck or they just appear out of nowhere. It takes time for them to be made, and especially in this critical time, it would have been first in, first served, and Australia rejected the Pfizer deal in July 2020. And, you know, what's Pfizer going to do? It's a large pharmaceutical company. 
And of course, there are problems with Big Pharma, but it's a profit-based company. If an insignificant country like Australia that had a low caseload rejects a very, very good deal, well, Pfizer's not going to keep coming back and knocking at the door of the Australian government and asking them for, for a deal. You know, they're just going to move on elsewhere. The other issue here is that when there's a problem with supply, all we hear from the Morrison government is blame. There's always someone to blame. With Pfizer, their proposal wasn't good enough or it wasn't the best deal for Australia. So Scott Morrison told us at the time. With AstraZeneca, they've blamed supply chain issues, even though they were the ones that caused those issues in the first place. And now they're blaming ATAGI. That's the Australian Technical Advisory Group on Immunisation. They're blaming them for issues in the slow rollout and vaccine hesitation. So Whenever there's a problem, there's always someone else to blame. And that's not really a sign of leadership, is it? No. Ultimately, the buck stops with the Prime Minister. Harry Truman said it. He is responsible. He He's the one who has to weigh up the advice and pick the best advice and take the best advice and act on the best advice. He's the one who has to make sure that the best people are in the jobs. Now, I know that there's lines of uh, hierarchy and things can happen quite far down the track. But ultimately, it's he who has put in all the people who make the decisions. Even if behind closed doors, you're very angry with those who've given you the bad advice or who've misled you or who've not expressed things properly. In public, you take the responsibility. And if you can't do that, step aside and let someone in who can and will. And that's, that's the difference. And I know every prime minister has done this, but none to the extent that Morrison has. Yeah, and it seems that irrespective of the pace of the vaccination rollout, whether it's slow, slower or slowest, Morrison does come out and shrug his shoulders and pretty much say, well, what's the problem? The rollout is going exactly as we planned. And and in some sense, he might actually be correct. Morrison's plan, when you weigh everything up, may have been a live with the virus strategy. Now, he can't come out and make this big announcement about this because to say that we have to live with the virus without actually achieving herd immunity first, well, that would be political suicide. Now, he has been suggestive of this strategy over the past 18 months using code words such as, well, we have to get out from under the doona. And New South Wales Health Minister Brad Hazard, he did actually say, a few weeks ago, maybe we have to learn to live with the virus. He only said that once and he didn't repeat it again. But when you take all of Morrison's actions into account, the lack of the deal with Pfizer, the lack of phone calls to Albert Buller, the head of Pfizer, the lack of concern over the slow pace of the vaccination rollout, we have to come to the understanding that this might have been the, the strategy of Scott Morrison and the federal government all along. Yeah, for whatever reason, and we see it in London... We saw it under Trump, we saw it in Australia, we saw it in Brazil, and these are all right-wing leaders, neoliberal leaders, all with very similar approaches. The idea is we can live with this. It'll bubble around the community and we can handle 20 or 30 cases a day and we just have to be a little bit careful. The rest of the world is saying, wait, no, what we need to do is eliminate it as best as we can. Now, we may never fully eliminate it, but we've seen with things like polio, with measles, diseases like that, you can get to a stage where they're no longer a threat with a proper immunization or vaccination program and good health policy that is universal and reaches to everybody. 
it's insane. The other issue that the federal government has been attacked on is the the lack of a public awareness campaign as well. So they're being criticised for not developing this or not having it in place. And ultimately, they did release something last week. It was the Band-Aid ad. We'll just play a little bit of a snippet. A COVID-19 vaccine is your best defence and our only way forward. Now's the time to arm yourself, your family, your friends, your workmates, your community, someone you love. Find out when you can arm yourself and book your vaccination. Go to australia.gov.au. They were just so lacking in inspiration. It was so poorly thought out, poorly produced. So they produced something weak and released that. They receive a lot of criticism about that. And it's almost like, well, okay, if that's no good, we're going to do the opposite to this. And then they release something dramatic with the ventilator advert. Here's a little snippet of that as well. It's dramatic, but it's psychologically weak. This advertisement, the second advertisement, was actually produced some time ago. And it is designed to shock, but it's just a very ineffective advertisement. It's almost like they've forgotten that it's it's 2021. It's not 1987 when the Grim Reaper HIV AIDS adverts were produced. The viewing audience is far more sophisticated and more nuanced in their understanding of media messaging and advertising. All of their ads. We discussed the famous milkshake ad or infamous milkshake ad. This one made no sense didn't give us any confidence in the ability of the government to be able to fix this stuff. And for a man whose career was supposed to be as a marketing executive, it was appalling. The advertisements were only released in response to public pressure to get and pressure from the Labor Party opposition to get a public information campaign to get people vaccinated. And vaccination numbers have increased somewhat, but again, it's a supply issue. There's not enough Pfizer vaccines available in the community. There's a lot of AstraZeneca available, of course, but it seems like people want to receive the Pfizer vaccine, not the AstraZeneca. So they've got this double-edged problem here where they need to put out a public information campaign, but when they put that campaign out, it's an ineffective campaign anyway, but if you're pushing the idea of people going out to get their vaccines, well, there just isn't enough vaccines to fulfil that demand. Go and get a vaccine that you're not able to get and you will be stigmatised if you don't get it. And there's also talk that Britain and America aren't going to allow in AstraZeneca travellers unless they've had the British or American version of it. I don't quite know how that true that is. That bubbled up for a couple of days and then went away. And whether they've gone back into negotiation about that or not, I don't know. But no matter what angle you look at this from, it's... <laughs> It's yet another government blunder, shall we say. Now, we always look around to see what's happening in politics to give us an idea of what might be happening in the future and I guess it's a little bit like reading the tea leaves but the Speaker of 
the House of Representatives, Tony Smith, he's leading politics. And he's been in the seat of Casey, that's in Melbourne. He's been the member for Casey since 2001. He's a member of the Institute of the Public Affairs. Now, he's never been a minister. He holds that seat by 4%. Now, what does this all mean? Usually, members of parliament leave parliament when they've just had enough or they see a potential loss of a seat or of government. This is also what happened in the lead up to the 2019 election. A lot of Liberal Party MPs, they resigned or they'd been in parliament for a long, long time and they just thought, no, we're going to lose the next election. It's time to bail out. But the Liberal Party didn't lose the 2019 election. They won it. So it's just a question of what does Tony Smith leaving politics actually mean? He's not that old. He's 54 years old. But does that mean that he's thinking that things may not turn out the way that the Liberal Party is expecting it to turn out in the next federal election? It's hard to know what his motive. We don't know what's going on outside. Hopefully it's not health related and that he's well and able to continue living a, a life and means that's one less member of the IPA in parliament distorting and devaluing the Australian parliament. So that's good too. But I can't help but think he's looked at the numbers and thought there's going to be a 6 or 7% swing against the government. Now in, in Britain... The Speaker is a very special role. You basically get the position of Speaker for as long as you'd like it. You stop all party affiliation and the other side do not run against you in your seat. But you are then extremely impartial. In Australia, that's never been the case. The few times where the Speaker has been impartial, it's ended fairly badly for the Speaker. Littleton Groom in 1929... Peter Slipper, who was a very good speaker, didn't end well for him for all kinds of reasons. Yeah, Billy Snedden was considered a very good speaker. He biased it towards the Liberal Party, but not blatantly. You then had people like Bronwyn Bishop. Well, Bronwyn Bishop was by far the worst in, in terms of the biasing towards. She was even attending party meetings and speaking at them, apparently, which even in Australia, was considered a little bit too much. Philip Curie from the Australian Financial Review, he labelled Tony Smith as the best speaker in the past 50 years. But we have to also remember that Philip Curie also headlined that article about Gladys Berejiklian where he called her the woman so, who saved Australia. So that has not aged very well. That was only a few weeks ago. <laughs> now... Tony Smith, he might actually be the best speaker over the past eight years, and he'd only be up against Bronwyn Bishop, so that's the fair assessment there if you're looking at over the past eight years. But best speaker over the past 50 years, I really don't think so. Not even close. He's probably in the middle somewhere, let's be fair, particularly after Bronwyn Bishop. You wouldn't have to work very hard to be considered better and also her negative legacy was so large, it's easy to forget the other fairly decent speakers we've had before then. It's an odd thing in Australia. You're the, you're the chair of the meeting, essentially, as speaker, but you can get away with a lot more than the chair of any other board or committee would get away with. Just for God's sake, don't hire a helicopter to get somewhere. Not many people around Australia would know who Tony Smith is. If they do watch Parliament Question Time, they might think of him as the, the guy that sits in the middle of the House of Representatives, but not many people would really know who he is. But he did tell Scott Morrison off a few times. By the government, with the states and territories, okay, well, I'm as going to part say to the, the Prime Minister, he, can pause. he had done that. 
and he'd moved on. And I'm asking you to return to the question. I'm happy to do that, Mr. Speaker. So I don't half, care whether you're happy or not. Okay. You need to return to the question. Half a billion, Mr. He is leaving politics. We're not sure exactly what that means. It could mean absolutely anything. It could mean that he feels that the government is going to lose the next election. He, he might just have enough of it. He might not be able to get his vaccine, and he thought that it might have a better chance of getting it if he leaves politics. Like, who, who knows what's going on there? We hope that it's because he's seen the end of his electoral stance, which, you know, isn't great, but is, is a valid reason to go. I don't think it's corruption related. I don't. I have. We haven't seen any evidence that he's been caught out in some kind of scandal. So the next government, who, whomever that may be, will have to pick a new speaker. But that's a usual problem for most new governments, anyway. That's it for this new politics podcast. Thanks for listening in. If you'd like to support our style of journalism and commentary, please make a donation at our website at newpolitics.com.au. We don't beg, plead, beseech or gaslight you about journalism coming to an end. We just keep it very, very simple. If you like what we do, please send some support our way. It helps keep our commitment to independent journalism ticking along. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks for listening in and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time.